Hey, and welcome to Zero Ambitions with me, Duncan Smith, and Jeff Coley, a podcast that focuses on the built environment and what we have to do to decarbonise our homes. We've got a really interesting episode for you today with Scott Foster, who's the Director of Sustainable Energy at the United Nations Economic Council for Europe, as well as Jenna Kramer, who is the Executive Director at the Green Buildings Alliance in Pittsburgh and who plays a part in the UN's Centre of Excellence programme. It's a fascinating and really quite uplifting discussion we had that looks at the the built environment and climate change and and how we need to look at our homes in a more holistic way. Scott and Jenna will be in Glasgow for COP and I hope you find what they have to say as interesting as we did. Thanks. Ready to go when you are. Great, great. Well, I'll just, we'll, we'll start just now. Well, Scott, Jenna, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on and, and to talk about um, the built environment and housing in the context of, of zero carbon and, and and COP26 here in Glasgow. Um, could you um, could you give us an idea about some of um, the issues that we face just now, just a sort of context in terms of the um, the climate emergency and and um, and how the UN is, 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 is approaching that? Well, thank you very much for uh, the questions. Thank you for having us on the program. In terms of uh, climate change, uh, I think the recent IPCC report uh, put it very starkly that this is code red for humanity. Uh, I would, in fact, expand that to say it's code red for life, um, or at least life as we know it. Um, I've been saying actually for a number of years that we're um, on track towards between four and six degrees. People get horrified. Um, But every time you see the statistics and any time you look out the window, uh, the speed with which the climate is changing around us is is damn frightening, frankly. Uh, We are in the process of cooking our planet. Uh, The IEA recently came out with some numbers that showed that the decline in energy consumption and CO2 emissions that were provoked by COVID and the economic shutdown, um, by next year we'll be back to where we were before. So we continue to spew out uh, volumes of CO2 and greenhouse gases generally. Uh, it, It is pretty frightening. Now, having said that, one of my pet themes um, is the idea of having to deliver quality of life at a global scale. And if we focus only on climate change, which as I said, is a species existential threat, but if we look only at that, then we actually lose a lot of people and a lot of countries uh, in the arguments and in the discussion, because the vast majority of humanity uh, is still worried about putting a roof over their head, food on the table, educating their kids, It's, if you will, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but at a much lower level. So if we're going to come up with a solution to climate change, which is an imperative, uh, then we're going to need to come up with a solution to their uh, quality of life aspirations as well. There's no way around it. We're heading into COP26. Uh, We are expecting uh, tough negotiations. I know that the U.S. and the EU is going to announce a major pledge on methane but we really need to go across the spectrum of uh, energy services, uh, the resources that we're using, uh, the objectives of the 2030 agenda, and the relationship between carbon and that 2030 agenda. I think we can do it. I think we will do it. 
uh, but we've got to get off our tails and, and start doing real things. I'll stop there and, and see if Jenna wants to add. Yeah, I would say that um, what I would add to that, I I agree with Scott's frame of reference of how how we talk about the urgency with climate change and, and using um, quality of life so that we're reaching more people at a place that's meaningful to them. And when I think about our work at Green Building Alliance, we were started 28 years ago and, you know, there was a lot of forethought and leadership that went into that work. But um, one of the original philanthropic organizations that supported us, the Heinz Endowments, it was Teresa Heinz who saw early on just all the ways that the built environment impacts quality of life and wanted to create an organization that was going to improve those conditions. And so we we've that was part of our first vision and mission statement and really helped make this work meaningful to a lot of people. Um, but also, you know, in the more recent years, even a few years ago, maybe it was the 2019 IPCC report about climate, um, that that has sort of fueled us even more to know that we need to do more, do it better, do it faster, and definitely bring more people along. That's very, very interesting, Jenna and Scott. I think um, uh, it's interesting to hear you frame it in the context of quality of life, um, because uh, for so long, much of the rhetoric and the discussion around uh, the climate crisis uh, has been around uh, the needing the, the need to make sacrifices. And, uh, you know, whether it's uh, turning down the thermostat in a building or whether it's uh, eating less meat or not having the sun holiday, you know, or, uh, or, or, or not driving. Um, and of course, there's no getting away from it. But I guess some, some of these things are, are, are going to need to be changed. Um, but uh, what, what are you, are you hinting at um, the fact that, that we need to rethink about, um, about how we, how we describe and even market uh, climate action so that, so that people can understand that there can be positives from this. And, uh, and related to that, I suppose the question is, if that is the case, um, it suggests that uh, the, the kinds of actions that, that, that you take are, are not purely motivated by emissions reductions alone, because of course there's ways of making emissions reductions that may not give that many other co-benefits. I guess I'll jump in. That's an excellent question. Um, I, I do know that the climate issue, and it's been phrased in those terms, that uh, the sky is falling and we need to uh, change. And I, I find often uh, governments, uh, international organizations, the UN, uh, wagging our fingers at people. Um, and there's not much appreciation of the burden that we're imposing on the individual or on the community uh, in terms of a resilience, affordability and climate and weather and health and the rest of it. Um, and when you're trying to juggle all of those things, um, if we're gonna come up with a coherent plan of attack that engages people, that conversation has to be an engagement. It cannot be simply dictating uh, to them that doesn't work. We, we want people to own the agenda. And you mentioned the built environment. Uh, UNECE, we've come up with our, what we call the commitment 
commitment trifecta. And the commitment trifecta are three actions that we think countries could take right off the bat. They make a lot of sense. They're economic uh, and they satisfy a, a, a lot of objectives. Um, and if we did those three things, we'd make a lot of progress in the right direction. Number one on that list is the built environment. And you know, we started off our program thinking about energy efficiency and trying to achieve certain energy efficiency standards. And as that agenda has moved forward, it's become a much broader set of topics. It's including uh, carbon uh, issues. It's embedded carbon. It's carbon emissions from the energy services that buildings require. But then it goes beyond that. It's dealing with price responsibility and affordability and, and health. Um, and very quickly, you realize that we're not looking only at building new buildings. We're actually looking at the retrofit market as well. Um, and by the time you include all of these other outcomes that we should be able to anticipate from the built environment, uh, it deals with um, things that people worry about. So the minute you speak to them with a vocabulary and agenda that delivers to them what they need, what their kids need, uh, what their kids need, speak in English maybe, um, then you're going to be able to uh, drive an agenda forward. If I'm going to go into um, a country that is absolutely dependent on fossil energy. And I'm going to say, I'm Thanos, bang, and I'm going to shut that coal mine down or those coal fields down. And suddenly I've put out of work um, all of the people. And I've got a social, urban, industrial ecosystem that emerged around that primary energy source. So we've suddenly got a um, an economic and social ghetto that then becomes another problem. So rather than doing it so radically, and keep in mind that radical is what we need, we've got to take together a program, put together a program that brings that community along and gives them hope, gives them options, gives them lives. And it's when you think in those integrated ways that I believe you'll be able to make serious progress on climate. Again, I'll stop there. I, th I think that's such an interesting um point scott because um we've been we've been talking um uh, in the last few weeks or so um just um uh, in, a, in a work context about the transition um from the industrialized economy here in the uk uh, in the 1970s and 80s and how certain necessary um economic um uh, decisions were made but without the human context behind that and i, and I guess to kind of to, to kind of take what you're saying and look at that from a whole systems approach we've got to look at uh, houses from that whole systems approach we've got you mentioned things as designers of retrofit and new build i think we are guilty sometimes of not thinking about the occupant or the health benefits or so on so you're, you're talking at a micro level to, to to factor in some of the the wider implications about housing and retrofit, as, as well as some of the macro stuff about how we make sure we transition to a net zero economy in a way that doesn't disadvantage people who are, who are working in um, fossil fuel industries. Is that, is, that, is, that, is that kind of chime with what you're saying? It, it very much does. And I find that um, if we don't have the conversation starting with where they are, then there's not going to be a conversation. The old saying goes, walk a mile in my shoes. Uh, and that's what we're talking about. 
again, I'll come back to the built environment. And this is an example from Ireland where there were um, some social houses that were developed in line with the principles that we've been espousing. And the enthusiasm that the people who live in those homes uh, have, have, have expressed um, is extraordinary. That really leads to other people seeking social housing, demanding the same kind of structures that meet their requirements. So talk to people in their language and you'll be able to make progress, absolutely. Jenna, I would I'd like to um to, to learn a bit about um about how Pittsburgh became involved um in in this uh, in the high performance buildings initiative um and you know how how you got signed up and 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 what's what's really happened since since you signed up uh, you know um because it's there may be other uh, cities and uh, uh, regions and so on who are who are uh, interested in, in following in your footsteps, and it's so you, that experience as an early adopter here, I think, would be really, really useful to 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 to, uh, to, to learn from. Yes, definitely. Um, so we uh, have a, a catchy phrase um, of twenty six by twenty six. So we would love to be celebrating twenty six centers of excellence by COP twenty six. Um, so we we would love to have more cities and organizations and regions involved in this effort. Um, you know, as, as um, Scott mentioned that uh, the built environment is one of the top priorities this year with the climate conference, but what everyone is considering as far as the most um, impactful and tangible ways to make impact. And, you know, for, for us as an organization and even us as a region, that that has been the case for quite some time. And I think about Pittsburgh, you know, there are a lot of cities like Pittsburgh across the world that are post-industrial. I know that Pittsburgh and Glasgow have a very strong relationship with each other that will also be celebrated at COP26. And so we're dealing with a lot of the same um, issues and opportunities of how we think about, you know, the burdens that the built environment has endured and how that's negatively impacted quality of life over the years, just from a, a very heavy industrial past, but what the opportunities are moving forward. Um, and so with Pittsburgh, you know, I mentioned when we were started as an organization in 1993, the focus really was around quality of life um, and people, it's it's meeting people where they are. Like Scott said, you know, it's one of our, our strong mottos of how do we meet people where they are, but we walk with them along their sustainability journey. And so we say there are 100 doors to sustainability and our job is to find their doors. So if we're talking to people about, you know, poor air quality and maybe they have asthma, or if we're talking to a business owner and talking about the money that can be saved by adopting sustainable practices. And that's really how GBA has gone about the work over almost the last three decades. And there's also just this really great collaborative um you know, collaborative, dedicated, uh, very partnership oriented, but grittiness, I would say to our region of coming together and finding, you know, seeing a problem, but really working together across sectors to find solutions. And so during that time, because of leadership across philanthropy and business and government, um, we've really been able to see a lot of the the ideas and ideals that have come out around the built environment. So anytime something new would happen around green building, 
Um, people in Pittsburgh really took these ideas and made them tangible and put examples into the ground. Um, and we have made a lot of progress over this time. So, you know, when in the in the United States, when we the first sort of green building framework came out, we had three of the first 13 buildings. Um, and as you know, all of these rating systems and frameworks really help us address things um, at a larger and better scale, we continue to adopt them. So whether it's living building or passive house, our region has been an early adopter. And I think you all had mentioned just the importance of even our existing buildings. It's not just about our new buildings that we're creating, but we have a lot of older existing building stock. And so in 2012, we launched a 2030 district to really look at how can we help existing buildings reduce their energy and water use 50% by 2030, as well as their transportation emissions, again, to help them save money, but also reduce the impact on the environment and improve quality of life. And so, um, you know, we continue to adopt these, these um, new and best practices. Um, and, but we're also a place that we don't want to rest on our laurels. We know that we have a lot of work to do to make sure that our whole region is coming along with us, that we're not leaving anyone behind and what a healthy, high-performing place looks like. Um, and we know that if we're not working with our neighbors across, you know, our region, our country, but even the world, that we are not going to solve climate change or the biggest environmental and social issues in front of us. And, you know, as I mentioned, I think it was 2018 that maybe we started conversations with Scott and um, learned about the High Performance Building Initiative and was really inspired and felt like it was something that could re-inspire and engage a community that has already been dedicated to a healthy, high-performing built environment. And we felt like all of the components of this initiative, including starting a center of excellence where we can build best practices, provide education and training, um, advance different policies or financial incentives, and get demonstration projects in the ground, all while working with our peers across the world so that we're learning from them, but also sharing what we are doing, it felt like it was the natural next thing to do as we were entering this next most important decade as we're working towards 2030 when we know, you know, these next few years are so important and what we do with them will have major implications, not just on us and our region, but um, the whole globe. And so this effort, it's it had the resources, you know, the the people, the inspiration, the excitement, um, and also just what I think our region was looking for as we're thinking about what's next and what's going to help us get to where we need to go by 2030. Fantastic. <laughs> I think it's very interesting that, sorry for cutting you in, Duncan, there, just a um, uh, quick quickly or by, by all means uh take over if you want but um uh i i had one one question that that um that for you jenna as a kind of a follow-up which i think is, is it's just when you talk about bringing people along and, and and focusing on quality of life and so on pittsburgh uh as i recall it you know uh, pennsylvania the, the state that pittsburgh is in was was the um was the was the state in the blue wall that 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 fell into in 2016 
uh, and you know, uh, part of this rust, this rust belt region of kind of former industrial heartland of, of America that uh, that 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 uh, that uh, ended up voting voting for Trump. I don't want to go, go on at, at all or really at length about about Trump or about politics in general. But but the point for me is that um, uh, I think it's really interesting. Uh, to, you know, when you focus on quality of life and when you focus on on looking at the position people are in. Um, look, looking at where they're coming from, uh, does it does it does it then create a situation where you can reach across the political divide? Does it mean that you're speaking to people in terms that that uh, stop it stop this falling into conventional, you know, uh, uh, different p- p- political camps in terms of, uh, of of the arguments you're making? Do you think it's beneficial to take that stra- that strategy and and uh, and, uh, and and does it mean that you can help to potentially depoliticize the, the subject? Definitely. Um, you know, in our work, we've we've always advocated that this is a bipartisan issue, that it should not be political in any type of way. And I think, you know, we've allowed a lot to divide us in many different ways. And there's a lot, you know, even in the last few elections, just watching, um, you know, Pennsylvania change in many ways because of what maybe people see as values or values basis, but when you meet people and know who they are and where they're coming from and why they care about anything or what it is that they're working towards, there's always more commonality than not. Um, You know, I've thought a lot about my own family, grew up, both of my parents' families were in the Mon Valley, which is an area that was very, where a lot of industry was located. My grandfather was a steelmaker. My other grandfather was a baker. It's just this hardworking mentality where, of course, they were working always for their families and the health of their families. And that was traditionally one way politically that has shifted a lot. Um, but again, this conversation about, um, you know, we all we all care about the health of our children, We all want our communities to thrive. We all want to be able to put food on the table and breathe clean air. It's just this very, it should be a more um, basic conversation versus um, thinking about it always in the terms of trade-offs. And so we, we really do, I would say, like coming from this why standpoint or even a values basis, versus getting down the line of politics. But also, you know, I think it's important to show examples of these projects or companies that are making really great decisions that are also benefiting them from an economic standpoint, also environmental, but then also social. And knowing that we can have these co-benefits or triple or quadruple bottom lines, and that that's, you know, I, that's so much of our work is is communicating that, showing that, uplifting those stories so that people can can see and realize that they're also part of this picture and vision, that it's not one of exclusion or one that is politically aligned. Can I jump in real quick? Because I found that um, answer both right on and the question very interesting. Um, this is a lot about communications. Um, and when I think about uh, shaking my finger at somebody and saying we have to save the planet, stop emitting CO2, that doesn't necessarily communicate. It does for some, but not all. On the other hand, when you think about buildings in particular in the built environment, 
we are talking about jobs and we are talking about innovation. Um, so you really need to adapt your language, and your vocabulary, depending on your audience. As, as uh, Jenna has just said, um, this shouldn't be political. If it is, need to adapt your conversation just uh, sorry scott did, did um, that cut out for everybody point, else or was uh, that just for me uh, near oh. zero or oh. probably not the bull um, <laughs> yeah. sorry um i don't know where i got cut off but when we talk about passive house or we talk about near zero um that tends to be a rather uh, bad way to communicate that's why we've chosen high performance buildings because we're trying to create a positive dynamic for this agenda we find that most um, of the communities that are interested in these topics are very keen on working with the UN to advance that 2030 agenda. So in sum, it really gets down to the communications. And if you can get that right, um, you've got a head start. I'll stop. Scott, can, can I actually build upon that? But I'm going to ask Duncan and Jeff first, because I, I was, um, you know, the communication side is important. And I, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of research about what motivates people, even from this space of neuroscience and hope and feeling like you can have a positive impact. And, you know, almost a decade ago, we started an inspire speaker series. Scott has actually been one of our inspiring speakers because, you know, we're never going to get people to change or come along if we are shaming them or, you know, just totally overwhelming them, which climate change is very overwhelming as a whole. But I think finding the moments of or the opportunities to communicate where there is agency and is hope. Um, and I like moving to that net positive lens. There's a friend, uh, Greg Norris, he works out of MIT and does a lot with hand printing and talked about the neuroscience around the idea of a carbon footprint, where you're basically telling people that no matter what they do, they're always going to have a negative impact on the world. And so they've started the idea of handprints that actually we can overcome all of the negative impacts that we would have and be net positive as people, as communities, as organizations, um, as companies, as governments. And so the communication side, again, I think is just, we have to be paying attention to that as we move forward. I, I find myself, I find myself nodding, nodding along, Jenna, and it's really, it's really quite inspiring to hear um, the conversation that you're, you're able to have. And, and I think what, what's quite refreshing and, and pro probably something we can learn from is that you, I, I think what you're trying to do is, is in order to 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 mitigate the resistance uh, around some of the things we have to do you're looking at a holistic picture that encompasses um, a wide variety of topics all of which are central to the built environment so community health and, and so on um i, I mean I, I guess the question that i i would have is what resistance have you found where has that been how have you overcome it um I, I, as well as scott and i have had discussions in the past where uh, there's a significant amount of 
um, I think there was a chart that we discussed uh, once, Scott, where uh, you were looking at, at buildings' performance and how you measured that and how you could could um, substantiate and justify some of the the, uh, uh, the measures that were taken. So it, it'd be good to know, Jenna, how what resistance have you found? Where has that been? And, and I guess communications are able overcoming that. But where, where have you found that most? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely always um, resistance in different places. And depending on where we are with initiative or this work collectively, we're either going for the early adopters and innovators or trying to get to, um, to the masses. And I would say even through this uh, center of excellence work and the high performance building initiative, you know, it's about everyone and everywhere and the entirety of our built environment. So there's going to be resistance in different places. And we use different strategies. You know, I'd already mentioned inspiration. We also do education and training and that sharing of best practices. So how are we empowering the workforce? Because we feel like when people know better, they do better. Um, We use data and data-driven results and solutions a lot to make the case. So if we're talking to businesses or a government or, you know, a university or a school, if we help track their data, even if it's on a building performance level and can show them how they're saving through these different um, mitigation points or, um, you know, investments that we are actually putting it into terms that they may understand or priority prioritize even from a financial basis. So it's trying to find, um, you know, those different ways of change from um, areas of resistance. And then always we lift up a lot of stories and people and places and projects that are doing the right thing. Uh, Because at the end of the day, we think, you know, everyone really does want to do the right thing. Like people don't want to be shamed or called out in a newspaper, but they would love for a project that they're working on to be highlighted and share that story and just bring more meaning to the work that they're doing too. So it's different strategy. I mean, we, we do get resistance, but again, it's meeting people where they are and understanding where that resistance is coming from and just trying to work with them and move forward. Uh, and the centers of, if I can come in on that again. Sure. Yeah, I'd like to come in on that again real quick. Um, I couldn't agree more with what Jenna has said. Um, some of the resistance that we're finding uh, are people who are actually, they've been in the business for years. They know how it's done. They know what's available. They've got their existing network, their existing framework. And getting them to move out of that uh, will require a Herculean effort. Uh, I think you all may know Jim Gannon from Ireland. He's vice chair um, of our committee. And he made the observation a while back that it's when you've actually affected the global supply chain for buildings, which means not only the architects and the engineers, but also all of the building materials that are going into them. That's when you will have had an impact. So the resistance is almost more the collective inertia. And that's why it's necessary for the UN to act uh, at scale and to uh, really mobilize a global community because it's when they're moving collectively that we're going to make a difference. Thanks. Uh, And is is that, Scott, where you see the centers of excellence um, 
really um, coming together and, and providing that um, that positive message at a truly sort of international stage? Is that is that the role that you see of the information that that, that can be shared and, and practice uh, shared at the the centre of excellence level? Uh, yes, absolutely. In fact, our High Performance Buildings Initiative has three primary pillars, and the centers of excellence are one of the three. Um, what we have then is um, institutions and organizations that are very focused on their local community, their local stakeholder group. Um, and that's what we think is important. It might be UN, but we don't only want to operate at the ribbon cutting level about new initiatives. We actually want to make a, a substantial a difference on the ground by changing behaviors. So it's that connection to the local communities and local stakeholders through the centers of excellence that we think will have a huge impact. The second leg that we've got is a thought leadership group, which if you will, are, are gurus from um, different sectors. And they um, are able to have a dialogue and a discussion about all of the income, um, all of the um, uh, outcomes that we're expecting for the built environment to talk through, make sure we've got them all covered, to then come up with what are the right measures to use and to go from there to get countries to commit to those quantitative outcomes and those targets. When that can happen, it'll feed then back into the centers of excellence saying, here's where we're going and here's what we want to achieve. The third leg is what I would call the industry leadership group. Um, we're trying to develop these case studies, and Jenna's just described it perfectly. People love to see their name in lights of, of advancing the good of humanity. So if we can get them to put case studies of uh, urban environments, rural, high-rises, multi-home, uh, commercial buildings, et cetera, and get all of them to be coming up with a library. So if I'm in Rio de Janeiro or I'm in Moscow, I can find an example and a mirror of my situation. Um, so those three pillars all collaborating and interacting, we think will make a difference. That's what we're all about. Fantastic. I'm really interested in, um, in there's an analogy, I think, potentially here, or a similarity I see at least between um, the role that the centres of excellence could play and something that I have experience of in an Irish context, which is... Um, local authorities um, going back as far ago as 2005, in fact, um, in North Dublin, bypassing what were then really pretty uh, basic and rudimentary building regulations when it came to energy performance um, and setting 60% in the case of North Dublin, Fingal in North Dublin, 60% energy reduction, 60% carbon reductions, and 30% renewable energy requirements as well for all new buildings as a condition of planning. And that eventually uh, uh, spread, had a, a role in, in, in advocating for this at the time, uh, in a few other local authorities within the next year in Dublin. And by 2007, uh, the, a new government came in and committed to, first of all, 40% reductions in, in energy and carbon and mandatory renewables, and then 60% redu reductions by 2011. So it meant that the heavy lifting for us on complying with the NZEB, the nearly zero energy building standard, was uh, which was which which the Irish definition ended up being a 70% reduction. So for basically a further 10% reduction on where, what we'd already, where we'd already got to by 2011. And that arose, I would say, directly from 
these, this kind of initiative of local authorities taking action. So, you know, we're now in a situation um, where, in an, in an Irish context, for instance, we're seeing local authorities looking at, at starting to focus on other issues like embodied carbon and, and, and improving further. Do you think that there, would you encourage that kind of activity? And is this what you're envisaging for the Centres for Excellence as well, that you can start to, you know, uh, progress things regionally, even from a policy perspective, perhaps, um, and then uh, lead to national and then maybe international mushrooming? I'll give it a first shot. Um, the answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> um, the way we're seeing this evolve, um, I might start with um, what I call my six circle Venn diagram, um, because our initiative isn't only about energy efficiency. Um, it really is starting about the envelope and that's the passive house approach. Uh, it's about getting the envelope uh, done right getting perfect construction techniques, um, getting the materials right. And when you do those three things, you can really drive the energy requirements for a building to very, very low levels. Um, I don't know if you're both aware, I think um, Duncan may be, um, that the Passive House Institute put up a, an ice challenge, ice box challenge in Scotland. And they compared Passive with the latest um, standards for Scottish housing. And they found that passive was one step beyond. It was even uh, better performing than the Scottish standard. Nothing wrong with the Scottish standard. It's just, we can always do better. So the first element is the um, envelope. The second one then is getting the systems designed once you've got your first part done properly. It's all the heating, ventilating, air conditioning, uh, plug-in loads. Uh, and making sure you've got a structure in place that you can have optimization of those uh, systems. The third area would then be on the digital side, digital keeping track of uh, the maintenance of the equipment, uh, keeping track of indoor air quality and uh, 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 humidity, things like that, uh, keeping track of all the materials that go into the building. Uh, tracking embedded carbon, tracking critical raw materials, and then finally keeping um, contact with what's happening with energy prices outside. And with all of that, suddenly you create a price elasticity of electricity demand, which is hugely important. You then move over to the fourth item, which is mobility. Everybody's talking about e-mobility, electric vehicles. That might not be the only solution. A lot of it comes into urban design. Then you go into water and water management, and we can see all around the world with all the flooding that's starting to happen, how much importance we need to place on water. And then the final circle is everything to do with uh, services, uh, waste, food, and the rest of it. So if you look at it from that perspective, this is way beyond simply energy efficiency or even carbon efficiency. That's why we refer to quality of life. So indeed, we anticipate by having a global network where people are comparing notes and talking to another. Um, there's the technical connections, but there's also the centers of excellence who engage with local political bodies that will have a, um, an effect that will grow over time. Um, the network itself remains local in what it's doing, but that exchange of experience across the network makes us into a global movement. Have I answered your question? Absolutely. Thank you. Jeff, I, I would add, I think that that was such a great example just about policy, because 
Um, you know, in addition, thinking about networks and what makes networks just really valuable and help all of the people involved is that we're not all going to excel at the same thing. And, you know, one of the priorities we have as a center is thinking through where all of the other places that have implemented really um, strong policies that have then catalyzed change. Because where we are, we usually don't lead with policy. So it's usually very voluntary based. And again, we're lifting up early adopters and leaders, but we also know that policy has a strong role to play and that that could be a leverage point that we use in the future. And so we've looked at the NZEB um, policy from Ireland or thinking about some of the work that Vancouver has done or Brussels, you know, those are the examples we hold up as shining lights. And how do we reach into the network and say, you know, how did you do this? What has been a result from this policy? How could we move that forward? And having collaborators that can really bring that expertise to the table it, it just, that was a really great example, I think. I, th I think as well, um, thank you, uh, this point that um, that uh, you, you mentioned there, Jenna, about, um, about what we learn from it. And, and Scott had mentioned the digital element of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, essentially understanding how buildings are actually performing and so on. That's the ingredient in the in the Irish context. I suppose that's the area that we don't yet know the answer to with regard to this policy. Um, where the, the monitoring is starting to go on. So there, we'll be doing some detailed probing to understand to what extent these measures have worked, you know, um, and uh, and uh, because we are, we are seeing extraordinary kind of stories emerging in terms of changes in the build specs in, in, in Irish homes. You know, we've gone from, uh, you know, improved the fabric standards quite dramatically from an air tightness of, 11.8 cubic meters per meter square per hour is the average uh, uh, back in the last boom, down to about 2.5 now uh, under the under the current regulations. That's the the average result that's been achieved to date under these new regulations. Um, and then heat pumps have gone from being, for instance, nowhere to being in the order of 90% of new homes having them fitted. Um, so we're seeing kind of extraordinary changes in in, in various ways. But but as I say, we still. Uh, I think it's critical that we have uh, uh, that, we, that there's a kind of strong effort in place to uh, to quickly feedback uh, on on how that is performing, how the industry is coping with this this huge huge kind of transition. I did. I wanted to ask a, um, a, another broader question, which relates, I guess, to COP26, um, because a lot of the dis discussions uh, um, uh, around climate action have focused on uh, on either mitigation or adaptation um and of course you know uh, uh we're we're entering into a situation now i, I would say where, where we have to ask the question put it to you both um do you think we can still afford to focus on cutting emissions alone or do we need to think about adaptation too even in terms of how we go about cutting emissions if you give the example for instance of um of uh the impact of higher temperatures on how buildings perform you know, and the and for instance, in a temperate region like 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 Ireland or the United Kingdom, uh, air conditioning might start to become a new load that's added to even domestic buildings if we're not careful. Um, so, what do you think? Do you do you think uh, do you think we we need we need to factor in adaptation into our even into our mitigation efforts? I'm pausing to let Jenna go 
first. <laughs> I, was, I was saying the same thing for you, Scott, because I always, you know, you're the UN and it's it's about COP <laughs> as well. Um, yes, I, I think that we're at a point in time that we need a lot of solutions at the table and that it is going to be about adaptation and mitigation. And so even, you know, we, I had mentioned the 2030 district earlier, um, we have, well, in our whole region, close to a thousand buildings committed to these pretty aggressive reductions in their existing operations. But the Pittsburgh 2030 district, which is the largest um, in the world, there are over 550 buildings committed to that. And every year we do a progress report. So we look at real performance, we aggregate the data, and a lot of the, so, you know, a lot of what the the um, findings were at the end is that, you know, buildings are still like, even if people aren't occupying office spaces, a lot of them didn't see a huge reduction in energy because they're still operating and maintaining those spaces. If there's one person in that building or if there are 100 people in that building, I think the same thing, you know, COVID, we, we all found ourselves in our homes more. And that also increased residential energy use. Um, you know, for Pittsburgh, we have much warmer summers. So people who do have air conditioning, those loads are much higher. So we have to be thinking about how our, you know, our external environment is going to impact our use of buildings or other um, high use intensity spaces. And then also even thinking about indoor air quality with things like, you know, global pandemics. Um, just there may be a lot of different measures where we're trying to increase the health of the indoor spaces and that may increase energy. So we're, we're always going to need an adaptation and mitigation approach to all of this work. That's my opinion. Scott, what's yours? Sure. Um, I'm the UN, but I'm going to give you a personal anecdote. Tell you a personal. Yeah. I'll tell you a personal anecdote. Um, this summer, I took three teenagers to the United States, keeping in mind, and it's very important that these are teenagers. And they were horrified that they had to wander around the house and turn off the lights of the adults who had gone before him. And I, I felt I was standing on my head. The world was upside down. Um, there's a completely different culture to um, energy. And you've mentioned air conditioning and air conditioning load. When I go to Houston, Texas, and the average temperature in the buildings is 68 degrees or 18 degrees centigrade, what? Um, this is just insane. So I earlier I said we shouldn't wag our fingers and tell people not to do certain things, but there is a culture of energy uh, hogs that's got to be addressed. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I think is important is um, as the UN, as we go forward on making these commitments and these promises, um, there's a lot that we can do. So when we go to COP and we go to COP26, countries are going to be making commitments uh, on uh, mitigation. But I'm hearing more often the word resilience and it's resilience to uh, what happened in Texas last winter, what happened with Louisiana just recently, what happened in uh, Germany with the floods. Again and again and again, you're finding violent climate is something we're going to have to deal with. And the word they're using is resilience, but in effect, it's adaptation. 
Um, so you've got uh, to deal with resilience from an economic perspective, from a physical perspective, from uh, an environmental perspective. So all of those are important. And, you know, when we say that we want to meet two degrees, people yell at me saying, but our objective is one and a half degrees. Excuse me, but we're going to hit one and a half degrees within the next. It's still on me. Okay. Uh, the point is that we have an objective of one and a half degrees. The analysis shows we're going to hit one and a half degrees in the next four or five years. Yeah. So we've got yeah. to really focus on both adaptation and mitigation. They're both important. Scott, Scott, I mean, this has been a, a, a fascinating conversation, and I think we, we could probably spend another hour here. There's there's things that I want to ask you um, in, in particular, and, 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 I, and I appreciate we've, we've only really got an hour of your time. One of the things that I'm really interested in, because I, I think we've kind of nailed, I think what's really fascinating about the Centre of Excellence um, project is it's about the built environment, but looking at that holistically, and I love that concept and sharing it information and good practice to try and to try and change the dynamic in, in each country that's i think that's just brilliant but one of the things i'm interested in is jeff and i have had this conversation and and, and to an extent we, we've kind of solved the demand side of energy from a residential building perspective we can use things like pacifiers and interfit but where do you see the direction because i know this is something that you're interested in the direction of energy and how we buy energy and energy as a service. Is there something you can tell us in terms of how you think things may play out over the coming decade? Yeah. Um, one of my key themes at the UN has been reinventing the energy world. Um, and I've done a TED talk on the topic about energy as a service. We're actually going to extend that, not just energy, but energy and resources, because we're not consuming um, stuff. We're not consuming uh, kilowatt hours or BTUs or even rubber. What we are consuming is the services that we're getting from them. Uh, so we need to rethink how we manage the energy system, how we organize it. Uh, and the proposition I have is to change it just like the phones, just like the airlines into a service industry where I change my relationship with you, you pay me a fee and I keep the temperature in your house at 20 degrees or maybe 22, depending on the contract uh, and so forth. You can do the same thing with mobility. You can do the same thing with a range of things. But as long as we're in a world where we're buying and selling commodities, stuff, as I like to say, uh, we're going to have a hard time um, closing the circle on both climate change and the 2030 agenda. I, th I think that's that, that's so interesting. Um, we're, we're kind of coming towards the end of our time, and like I say, I, I could I could happily listen to you guys for um, for another uh, hour or so at least. Um, Jenna, will, will you be coming to COP in Glasgow? And and, and uh, you know, hopefully you will be. It would be lovely to 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 um, to meet up. And and if so, what what are the kind of things around the built environment that people can look? Um, to either join virtually or on the ground. Is there, is, is, is there anything set up just now that we can um, that we, that we can look at? Yes, I I hope to be attending Glasgow um, first and foremost because you promised us all dinner with your family, but second because of pop. <laughs> um, yes, 
Exactly. Um, so we, you know, I think we keep telling even our local community how exciting and important it is that there are a lot of efforts happening on an international scale to really center and prioritize the built environment. And a lot of that is thanks to the work of Scott and UNECE for making that um, a priority. And the fact that there is a day focused on buildings at COP is also really exciting. Um, And so working with partners like you, Um, And several others just trying to organize meaningful events where people are coming together, but they're also educational and meant to move the needle forward and really launch some of these critical initiatives over the next decade. I think it's a huge opportunity. Um, And then also, you know, from our region and from Pittsburgh's perspective, um, we hope that there will be several leaders from here present because we have a partnership with Glasgow and I believe our mayors are planning a signing ceremony. Um, And at the same time, you know, with this initiative and with Scott, we hope that we're going to have a large ceremony to acknowledge and highlight and welcome the first 26 centers of excellence and um, how we're all going to work together to really move this initiative forward. Fantastic. Um, If I... I if I, yeah, sure. if I can add to that real quick, um, absolutely what Jenna has said, this idea of being able to bring the network up to 26 by 26 would be fantastic. We have been slowed by um, COVID, um, but we're anticipating moving beyond that. Um, so that'll be fantastic. Uh, the other idea is um, the movement in um, COP. Um, the statistics that are out there always focus on how much electricity, how much coal, how much this, and how much that. The conversation has not been about the built environment. And we're actually hoping to have a major impact on how policymakers perceive where their avenues of influence really lie. It's not just shutting down coal um, power plants. It's actually getting uh, civilization organized uh, for a sustainable future. And that's where COP should focus in our view. I, I've, that, I think that's, that's really fantastic. I've got one last question and I'll let Jeff wrap up if that's okay. Um, what, what I would say is, uh, or what I would ask Scott is, what, what, what is this the most important COP? And, and what does a successful COP26 look like? You're getting me into very dangerous political territory with that question. (laughs) Um, To my view, a successful COP is going to be one where um, industry and governments and uh, I, I, you know, intergovernmental organizations, IGOs and NGOs make serious concrete commitments and get on with delivering on them. Uh, we've had lots of aspirations. And often when you read the language, you know, it, it's inspiring and it isn't that wonderful, but it doesn't actually lead to real change. So for me, a successful COP is one that does deliver real change. Um, I can't say that this is the most important COP simply because we got to this point. Uh, we're facing um, more than two degrees. Um, because we haven't been concrete in the past. I first looked at climate change, I'm going to scare you here, in 1979, 
did a paper on climate change and growing CO2 emissions. Had the world paid attention at that point, it wasn't me, by the way, I was just a junior analyst uh, supporting uh, smart people. But if the world had actually paid attention at that point, the cost of adapting and mitigating would have been much lower and we wouldn't be facing the crisis that we do today. So it is not 10 past midnight on the global uh, climate change um, uh, disaster clock. Um, it's actually 1230. It's way, way uh, late. So yes, this is important. It's really important because it may help us move towards real change. Um, but but we're slow and late. That's my view. I think that Scott said it well that, you know, there's there's no choice right now where we are other than um, moving forward in a in a pretty urgent and aspirational, but like doing kind of a way um, that, yeah, you guys are going to have to edit this because I always get, I get emotional because again, you know, we're just in this point in time that there's really no choice if we want to, I think Scott started the the podcast saying that it's about humanity, that climate change is the one issue that unites all of us. Um, and I've been in this space where I do feel fearful for my six-year-old son, but, you know, we will experience it in our lifetimes as well. Um, and so I'm trying to focus on the opportunity that's in front of us, but we are late to the table and, um, you know, yeah, yeah, that's all. Well, thank you very much, both of you, uh, Scott and Jenna. Um, I think it's been... Just, I'll just I'll start that again because there's a, a noise there. And thank you, uh, both Scott and Jenna, so much. Um, I found it really uplifting and uh, in an area where it's so easy to feel, frankly, very despondent. I think it's very important. What's very useful for me about this, and what, 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 I, what I hope listeners take from it is that, you know, we have... Uh, uh, um, an organization, you know, representative of an organization like UNECE, for instance, um, and of the High Performance Buildings Initiative, calling for radical, uh, mm. uh, urgent action, and and with and with very clear ideas of the kinds of actions that we need to take. Um, and it's that's a world away from the kind of um, the more banal. Uh, slightly more shapeless uh, or more rhetoric that we that we often get in this kind of space. So so there's a, there's a sense of clarity and urgency which I think is really really important. And I just hope I uh, wish you all the best uh, for the initiatives that, uh, that that and the efforts you're going to be putting in at the COP. Um, and uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, uh, we're, we're all we're, we're all rooting for you and doing we'll do everything we can to help. Yeah. Uh, it's, Thank it's you very fantastic. much, and we look forward to seeing you in Glasgow. Great. Thank you so much. It's great to talk.